I've been reflecting on why I do this podcast. I do it because I'm a teacher. I'm an artist. I'm inquisitive. I sincerely want to know the answers to these questions. But mostly because I I feel like by creating this podcast, it tries to assist in making it so that we're not all alone in these problems. There are many issues in the arts world and in the art market that we don't talk about, that we don't learn about, we don't discuss and get better at, we don't get the feedback we need to be more successful. And I want to help not just myself, but everybody else that's listening to this to be more successful. I want to remove the idea of starving artists from our lexicon. I don't want artists to have to be starving anymore. I want to make sure that we all can be successful. If we can't strive for some amount of success together, we're going to have problems doing it by ourselves. Too many people in the arts world think that it's a sort of an individual process, and it's not. It takes a group of people, many people, supportive people, helpful people, constructive people. And I want to try and connect you with some of their knowledge, some of their insights, some of their abilities, possibly even to them, so that you can learn and get better and grow and learn from my mistakes. Everybody shouldn't have to make mistakes in order to learn, but hopefully through either my mistakes or their mistakes, you can learn to avoid things or to work more in a particular direction in order to be more successful easier, easier than I had it, easier than they had it. And that we all can do better. And we all can be better. Especially in these tough times right now with the unknown future of the arts world. We need to try and get creative. Try to learn from each other instead of be competition. I know I can't be in your studio and you can't be in mine, at least not very easily. But we can still learn from each other and try and get better. Because an artistic career is a lifetime. If you have any questions that you want me to ask guests in the future, some very particular things, some unique things that only you're going through, please feel free to send me an email or a message on social media, and I'll be sure to include it when I have a guest who could give a helpful answer to you. Enjoy. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. My name is Rachel Wilkins. The first thing I wonder about creative people in general or people that choose to go into the creative industries is, of course, how are they made? So in other words, your childhood, your parents, how did you even get to an interest or an ability to be creative? Was it family? Was it a teacher? Was it a life experience? How did you get to this point? You know, it's interesting because I, I always... I always had crayons in my hand from as as young, as far back as I can really remember. You know, just that was kind of my escapism. I grew up as an only child and that was, you know, there was always a lot of adults in the room. And that was like my one area where I could just kind of go into my own little introverted world and express myself. Uh, my mom always tells a funny story about how I was, uh, I had asked her for a brown, a, a red, a pink, a green and a blue crayon. 
and she said to me, what are you, what are you drawing? And I said, oh, I'm drawing your hair. So she always gets a kick out of that. She said I was very, very creative from a, you know, a really early age, but you know, or colorblind or colorblind. Sure. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't really follow the, the conventional path. You know, I was reading a little bit about your biomat and um, I think we've had a similar, a similar experience in that, you know, I, I kind of did a little bit of everything, but that creative calling was always there. It was like just very, I, I guess, society-wise, like you kind of told, well, you're not going to make it as an artist. Like that's not a serious profession. You know, you can't, you can't do that professionally. So it was always on the back burner for me. So I kind of bounced around. I never asked society whether that would be something that <laughs> wasn't important to me. I guess just in the media and the things you see as a, you know, as a young person growing up, it was like, that's not something that's serious. No, it's a romantic idea. It's a childish right. idea. Like, yeah, of course I got these kinds of things. And I quite honestly, I still get them to this day. My wife still says this kind of crap to me. One day my wife actually said to me, she called my, uh, my career a, a, a hobby. I've never, I've never forgiven her for that. This was like three or four years ago now. And I, uh, she'll never live that one down. When the hobby starts paying the bills, it's a different conversation. It's what I keep trying to tell her and she doesn't (laughs) listen to me, but, but to a certain extent, like I'm in academia Mm. generally. So I, am a professor also. So, you know, I can't be a professor of art if I'm not producing and exhibiting and doing all this stuff. So like, mm-hmm. so my, my hobby that she calls it is, is the thing that does actually pay the bills because I right. get my, our prompt predominant income from teaching. So right. yeah, but, but the thing is, is it's, it's an interesting dynamic because people outside the creative industries sort of don't understand sometimes how the creative industries work kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like it's taken me years to even help her to understand how basically like sometimes like we have multiple jobs and do many different things, but they literally oftentimes are very, very interconnected. Mm -hmm. You can't do one without another. Yep. But people that are not in the creative industries don't see that. They don't understand. They're like, well, you do these random things that have nothing to do with each other. But in our minds and in our industry, they they're all the same. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's nice to have somebody to sympathize with me. It's good. (laughs) So you were always created from young. So then did you, Mm -hmm. you went on to go to school. Now you are from the UK, first of all, just clarify that for everybody, but you're currently living in New York city. I actually live in New Jersey. So about six, six miles, well, not even six miles, eight, eight minutes outside of Manhattan. A bridge and tunnel girl. Okay. Yeah, bridge and tunnel. Yep. Where the rent is much more affordable <laughs> than uh, Absolutely. I, I lived in the city for six years, lived and worked in the city, loved my experience there, would never, ever do it again. But, you know, it's just, it's the, the, the unfortunately what happened in New York was that artists were just completely driven out. I mean, even the fun cultural places that we exhibited at, you know, 10 years ago are now high rise apartments. Like it's just, it's a different city to what it was when I arrived here, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed. <laughs> so, oh, The first time I went to New York City, I remember they had just started referring to an area of town called Soho. And yep. we, we couldn't find it because we were looking for a Houston Street because of Soho and it's Houston. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a, it's in a, New York is an ever evolving sort of organism in and of itself. And like, so any time period that you have an experience there, you just sort of, that was your experience and it will never be the same again. Yep. A hundred percent. It's kind of sad though, because, you know, we, we drive past these places where we had these, you know, fabulous kind of underground shows and now they're these, you know, $10 million apartments and just feels a little bit like it's losing its magic. Um, you know, it's New York. It's always going to have some allure and, you know, magic, but it just feels in terms of the, the realness and the, the grit and the art, it's just losing a little bit of that, that edge, unfortunately, but we're seeing, you know, places like Long Island city and you know, Jersey city kind of yeah, having that pushed old, farther out. That's exactly. All. Gentrification at its finest, unfortunately. Moving on. So you did your, you did what kind of education? I'd never saw anything about sort of uh, schooling or anything. So here's the thing with me, and I and I share this often because people ask me. I I actually did not go through traditional education. I went straight into the workforce at 17. I you know I actually moved out of home at 17, and I I was like you know I got to find a way to stay on my feet, and I took a corporate position, and I, it was one of those things. I I never really knew what I wanted at that age. I never knew what kind of career path I I wanted to take. Like I didn't have that trajectory like probably so many other people do nobody knew at 17 right. oh my god right. at 17 all i wanted was to kiss a girl have sex do drugs right. drink a lot that's all i wanted to do nobody nobody knew i mean if if right. anybody at 17 said they knew what they wanted to do they were lying mm. like they they were force fed something by either society or their family or some sort of thing but right. there's no way yeah. I, I've never met a single person that that's the, the, the thing they believed they wanted at 17 is the thing they actually ended up doing. Or you have people who, you know, did take that path and they're miserable doing what they're doing today. Or they, cho they choose to be stunted in their growth like artists and they stay Peter Pan forever mm -hmm. like me. <laughs> right. I don't believe that, Matt. You, I'm just You have kidding. a very diverse background looking at your uh, experience. Oh, you have no idea. Like there are things I don't put on there. It's so funny. <laughs> oh yeah. Like my years as a roadie are, are not on my CV. But how much did that give you? Like in terms of being able to think on your feet and, you know, deal with situations that suddenly arise. Like I feel, I'm not saying if I could go back, I probably would have done the classic, you know, gone through four years of education. I would have done that looking back. If I could go back and redo it, I would go to a cheaper school because I'm still paying off my student loan. Well, my wife is too. I mean, my wife is 45 and she's still paying, paying off her law school debts. Like, I mean, not for nothing. It is a humongous investment. But yes, would I go back and do it again? Probably just to get it out of the way. But today, there's a certain richness that came from the other experiences I had in the workforce that I don't necessarily think somebody who was at school during those those years maybe had and i'm not i know it's apples and oranges but it's it's a complicated one yeah i mean the issue of academia across the board is a very difficult question especially in the arts world but where an education does not guarantee anything you know there's certain 
things. Like if you go to be a doctor, you go to be a lawyer, you pretty much know, like if you graduate, right. there will be somebody that will hire you and you will earn some money from your degree directly. Mm -hmm. But something like an arts education, the only reason I got as much education as I got was because I knew from a pretty early age that I wanted to be a teacher. So mm -hmm. like, so I was on, I intentionally got uh, to be a bachelor. So I have a BA and a BFA because my BA was not strong enough to get me into a master's program. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back for a BFA. Then I could go into a master's program. So in, it outside of teaching, I'm not, well, it did for me. Yeah. But, but like outside of teaching, I'm not sure there's any need for those higher degrees for most people. Don't get me wrong. My master's program actually was my best program like mm. that's the one where i really came into my own sort of got my balls sort of figured out my my, my path that kind mm -hmm. of stuff which of course i've changed since graduation but but it, it was the best education i had because it was a it was a master's program very creative in new genre art mm -hmm. which was very interesting which is the idea that you basically you come up with an idea or a concept and then you use whatever mediums necessary to express it. So Interesting. any given class, there could be a performance piece, a printmaking, a wow. sculpture, photographs, whatever. And we needed to learn to know how to critique and discuss art as a, as its own medium, regardless of its medium. Hmm. And that was the greatest education I got by far. Wow. Unfortunately, that school just announced its closing. So, oh my gosh, where did you go to school for the masters? San Francisco Art Institute. Oh wow, wow, yeah, it's closing. I know. I, my goodness, <laughs> I I have I attended the San Francisco Art Institute and the Corcoran School of Art, which mm. the Corcoran has also now been swallowed up by George Washington University, so that doesn't exist anymore either. Wow. So I have two great degrees from two schools that don't exist. Oh anymore. no. <laughs> <laughs> story of my uh, life yeah but we're not here to talk about me we're here to talk about you <laughs> well I had this kind of I guess about five years ago I said you know I, I have a little bit of time this is really before the business really started getting a lot a lot of traction I said you know I'm going to go back to school and take a couple of classes and so I went to just a community college and I took some art history classes I had this fabulous professor she was wacky as hell and, uh, you know, typical art history professor, <laughs> she, uh, you know, she really pushed me a lot. And, you know, I, when I met with her after the uh, semester, she said, you know, I really think you could pursue um, this higher education program at NYU. It was a combined art business and it was like a combined MFA and MBA. And, you know, I really thought about it. And then when I looked at the, the investment, it would have been like over 100 grand. Easy over a hundred grand. And I kind of was at a crossroads and I said to myself, I either spend that hundred thousand dollars and commit to this, or I go this way. I, I'm at a fork in the road, right? And I throw a hundred percent of my efforts into my business right now and see what, see what happens. And it, it was a no brainer. <laughs> what year is this that we're talking about? This is probably five years ago, I would say. 2015 maybe even six years ago yeah 2014 okay i'll tell you why just just to i don't mean to cut you off but i i was at art basil putting up walls for an art fair that we were producing whilst writing an essay for the class and i remember thinking you are insane right now <laughs> to Wait, be art basil in basel or art basel in miami, miami. miami. Okay. yeah just clarifying 
And I, I remember thinking, this is just way too much. Like, you need to pick a lane and you need to stay in it. No, that's fun. Those are the experiences. <laughs> that's what we do. I mean, that's what we do. Like, as creative people, basically, it's sort of like Tim Gunn. It's like, make it work. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's what we do. No one sees what it looks like behind the scenes, right? No, absolutely not. They don't see the crying. They don't see the drama. They don't see any of that. They just see the glamorous, uh -huh. you know, like, but you know, pomp and circumstance of the art fair and yep. the exhibitions, and they think that that's what our lives are. And it's it's not. not at all. <laughs> not even slightly. The only reason I'm even able to do this right now is because I took a Xanax. Like, mm. I mean, that's the only thing I can do to, you know, not cry about the possibilities of the future mm. after this pandemic. But, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so you run or are a participant in or an organizer of many different things. Lay it out for me. What is it that you are currently doing all these different things so everything really lives under underneath the umbrella of conception arts conception arts is the company that um, my wife and i and another artist actually founded in 2011 started out really just out of a need for a place to show my work show my friends work i was at the time bartending in new york city knew all these creative people who just were not getting the opportunities that you know, this, the elite we're getting. And we just had this concept of let's just throw our own events. It'll be a lot of fun. Ultimately, that was, you know, it was it was a lot of fun, but it was not bringing in any revenue because it was just basically a big party. And then in 2013, we found a way to monetize and kind of level up our game a little bit. And, you know, initially we were just doing events. So we were doing pop-up art events in 14 cities around the U.S., once we realized the business model worked in Manhattan, we thought, you know, we can kind of take this to other cities and see, you know, how it, what the response is like. And it really resonated in a lot of places because, you know, there was creative communities that were just had no platform for their work. So what we were bringing was something totally refreshing and fun. You know, we, we did this for several years. And then more recently, in the, I would say the last 18 months, you know, I would say really the the, the, re the reason this kind of came about was I was out at shows asking artists what they needed you know I'm like what is it what do you need from us and what I was hearing was you know we don't know how to market we don't know how to advertise we don't know where to sell online and so we really just knuckled down on how do we put together a supportive community where we can actually nurture these people and help them with this stuff and so we, you know, we put together an online course. We started a podcast, just like like you. Um, we're in our second season right now. We started to do some. Uh, we're about Hold to on. launch. The Go podcast ahead. is named. The podcast is Smart Art Business. Thank so, you. I'm helping you with your promotion. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, the podcast is you know 100 aimed at the working artists, right? So it's every 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 guest that we have on is there to solve a problem share their experience, you know, let let the community know how they did it, you know, the nuts and bolts of how they got from A to Z. So pretty much like what I'm asking you to tell me. So exactly, exactly. So it just it just really resonated with the community. And, you know, we started to see that the impact that these lessons, the course, the um, you know, the, the blog posts, all of this stuff, how much it resonated with the community and actually helped people. So, you know, there's been a bunch of things that we've done in addition to that. We, we started to do a, an annual residency program. We partnered with a 
beautiful chateau in uh, in France. And you know, each year we we have a jury, and we award one artist with two weeks at this fabulous resort a resort fabulous residency. It may as well be a resort. It's beautiful in the French countryside. And you know, and one person gets to go out there and have this absolutely life changing event. So. For me, it was just always about how do we extend the narrative? How do we treat our community with the, you know, how do we celebrate them? Because I feel like in the arts, you know, there's so many celebrations for, say, musicians or actors or, you know, there's there's award shows and ceremonies and there's just nothing for visual artists. There's really very little unless you are up here in this 1% and, you know, you're in the trust fund kind of Yale grad institute of artists there's nothing that celebrates the the emerging community so we really wanted to just change that narrative you know okay so you're very focused on the sort of the emerging slash mid-career artists yes a hundred percent okay help me out because i've asked this of people in the past and i want to hear your definition of it what's the definition of an emerging artist versus a mid-career artist hmm I would say a mid-career artist. Well, first of all, I think everybody has a different measurement of success. And I think that that varies from person to person. But I think that an emerging artist is perhaps still trying to figure out their place in the art world. And I think that can be extremely... (laughs) Yes, I see you pointing at yourself. And me too, you know? I mean, I think an established or a mid-career artist is probably somebody who's had representation who's had a consistency of sales with a specific market, maybe had some resale, maybe had that big, you know, big win. And everybody else, I think, falls under the emerging market. See, yeah, the problem, though, is that a lot of times the term emerging is also put with an age bracket on mm-hmm. it. So it's oftentimes yeah. emerging is basically like under 30 or under 35. Right. Which is well, what wrong. about the people that are past 30 or 35 who are technically under that kind of definition still emerging? You know, I, I try not to use the word when I'm talking about the artists because I, I, I agree with you. There is a certain ageism assumption with that community, which is generally not the case. I mean, we've got people that we work with that are in their 60s that are still, you know, trying to figure it out. So it's just unfortunately that's been the term, right? That's been the term that we expect. I never used it. I use it because other people told it, said it to mm-hmm. me. So I just picked it up. Yep. It wasn't a term that was in my vocabulary prior to people saying it to right. me. So we can just stop saying Yeah, that. let's do that. <laughs> let's put an end to it. Just, I mean, visual artists. That's that's good enough, right? Okay, yeah. Well, let's get a little pedantic about it here because I have a pet peeve at this exact moment about even the word artist mm. because everybody is using the word artists. Mm. Like there's like Instagram artists. Yep. There are, you know, people who do uh, decorative pieces, which don't get me wrong, they're lovely. They're saying the word artist. I really wish there was a a new word or we could just take it back to be truly sort of the gallery or fine art. Like it's like it's like fine artist mm-hmm. is feel feels very snobby. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that like the 
what I would call, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this, <laughs> saying all this, but the like craft people have now taken on the term artist mm -hmm. when really they're craftsmen, you know, so they, they design something, they make something beautiful. It's decorative. Maybe it, you know, ties a room together, whatever, that's fine. But the word artist is being like taken by so many people and put to whatever they do. And it's, it's making the, term artist not mean as much anymore hmm, interesting you know i was thinking as you were saying that the word that i see a lot in so many spaces where it doesn't belong is curated and that oh, makes yeah. it into curated content and it's you know it's about i don't know it's about batteries or something you know it's something so obscure if I was an educated curator, like an independent or a curator that works at an institution, I would be furious mm -hmm. about how like Instagram is even encouraging people to say like, oh, it's your curated life. Like, mm -hmm. come on. It's not a yep. curated. It's an edited life. It's a fictional life, but it's not a curated life. Right. Like the term, you know, these terms are being manipulated and changed and their meanings are changing. And so like, so it's, it's, unfortunately, it's sort of dumbing down mm -hmm. what we have all studied or what we have done for our careers and all this stuff into something that's nowhere near as poignant as what we um, hope it, what we do is. It's happening with the process as well, though, when you think about it, you know, how many more, how many people now have the ability to take good quality photographs with their phone? Millions. Right. So how many, how do you define who's a photographer today? Like, what is, what is oh, it? Don't start me mean? on this. I'm a photographer. Just okay. in case you didn't notice, like my education is in photography and mm -hmm. I'm like, I have such a like bee in my bonnet about the nature of photography these days because quite honestly i stopped mm. i just i'm now a painter i just stopped doing photography because mm. it's become so mediocre across the industry i mean there's so much yeah i mean the easiest way is just say mediocrity basically i mean don't get me wrong there are some magnificent people doing magnificent works but there's still just that like one percent maybe mm -hmm. five percent of like the best of the best everybody else is just sort of muddling around trying to do a good job and some people are making magnificent photographs and i'm all for those but ugh, there's so much bad stuff that the entire industry i feel like is being weighted down by the sheer volume of mediocrity hmm. see i think it depends on what your end goal is right and i and i speak to i have a little bit of a different opinion on it because a lot of my community are you know using these new technologies they're you know experimenting they're new you know, whether they're young or just picking it up at a later, you know, a later age, they're using what they have. Yeah. Just to be clear, the name of this podcast is called The Wise Fool. And that's because <laughs> I do all kinds of, I, I feel like sometimes like I'm that old, like grandfather that just makes stupid, bold <laughs> statements that are completely wrong. And the, it's not just, wrong. Please correct me, like or inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Let's say no, because so I think please you please correct me because you I have all I have is my own opinion, right? And you definitely have a point. You know, for those who are classically trained, and you know, I, I imagine it's infuriating to see that it is. The, the a lay person might look at a classically trained person's work and somebody who's taken a picture with an iPhone and not be able to tell the difference somebody who's a critic or, you know, 
understands the various nuances of how to capture a work and the process that goes into it will of course see the difference. Well, what pains me a lot that also these days is the lack of knowledge of art history mm. by people that define themselves as artists. Right. Like there are a lot of people out there, like I'm thinking landscape photographers. There are a lot of landscape photographers that, that like I might say, oh yeah, this is very reminiscent of like Ansel Adams or Edward Weston. And they'll mm -hmm. be like, who? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how can you be working in a field, in a medium, and not know the masters of the medium? Mm -hmm. Like, you need to know these names. You need to recognize right. this work. And that, for me, again, is just like, I'm. this, this podcast is going to go so far off the rails. But <laughs> the, <laughs> this it just infuriates me, this yeah. lack of knowledge and appreciation of the art history um, for current practitioners mm. no i can i can agree with that that's a, i'm also from academia so you know right and i did you know that's one of the main reasons i went back to you know to school myself to brush up on my own art history you know so i could have a deeper understanding so i, I would definitely encourage people to do that one of the things that you know i certainly encourage my community to do is to you know rather than just making work for the sake of making work try to develop your own visual language you know, try to have intent you know don't just make it because it matches the couch or you like those colors or i don't know the next artist is making it and you're seeing them have success like really try to get to or because pantone said it's the color of the year exactly but again it goes back to that in th that um you different measurements of success. And I really, I bring it back that, you know, conversations back to that all the time, because for some people, their big goal may be just to sell work to interior design stores. And if that's your big goal, then you're on the right track. You know, I spoke to somebody recently whose biggest goal is to have his prints of his artworks for sale in target. So again, a totally different big goal. You know, I, I, I would at least elevate it to Ikea personally, but it's just me. <laughs> but I saw you have a big goal, right? You have a big goal about MoMA. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Okay. What, what, the podcast um, interviewer is coming out at me now because I want to know. I want a little background say, on that. I'm talking a lot. but <laughs> Okay. So what happened? <sighs> all right. We're going to go all the way back to my high school. When I was in high school, I had this friend of mine, Billy, and we used to joke that when I turned 50 that he, I would uh, have a retrospective at the Guggenheim and he was, he was working in film and TV at the time. And he said that he would d do a documentary about me. So that was sort of our ongoing joke throughout like the uh, last couple of years of high school that I would be having a retrospective at the Guggenheim and he would doc, he would create a documentary film about it. Now he works in insurance and doesn't, hasn't touched film in 25 years. I'm still making art. So the idea was, is when I created the podcast, basically what it is, is a podcast is just a bunch of ideas. Like literally you're just hearing two people talk about whatever, and there's no quantifiable outcome to that. There's no tangible results to it. So the idea was is that I wanted to create a, a tangible result that I can try to achieve from all the learning that I get through the podcast and make it so that people can sort of 
see that the knowledge that is gained from all these conversations and all these networks that have been built and all these kinds of things actually can achieve quality results. I like it. That's very interesting. So let me share something with you that I tell. It was totally random because it, <laughs> okay. it could have been the Tate Modern. It could have been LACMA. It could have been any high institution. I chose MoMA because, of course, it's New York City. Mm -hmm. It's the Holy Grail. For me, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so yeah. So here's what I quite regularly talk to our community about. I say, if you have that big goal, write it on paper, right? Stick it somewhere where you can see it every single day. But then work backwards. Look at the steps that you would need to get to that big goal and work backwards. So for example, if it was MoMA, you know, look at who the department heads are for your particular type of work. Look at who the curators are that work in that department. Then you need to find out how you get connected with those people and develop relationships with those people because they're the decision makers. I have already done this research. I already have a spreadsheet with all of their names, not their contact information, some of their contact information. But the hard part is it's not gaining that knowledge because like to a certain mm -hmm. extent, a lot of that kind of stuff is freely accessible on the internet. Right. If, you, if you're enough of a cyber stalker, right. you can find that stuff out. It's how do you convince them in some way? How what's the approach? Like because like I've sat here with the curator of photography at MoMA's email address for probably four months, mm -hmm. and I, I'm not writing to them because I don't know what will spark their fancy. I mean, I know they're the general ideas of like say something nice, compliment them about mm -hmm. something they've done, you know, say like, oh, I really love the exhibition you curated of yada, 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 or I read the the forward to this book that you wrote and I thought found it very moving, whatever. But the, that's just kiss ass. The mm -hmm. question is, is like, how do you actually make them interested in what you're doing? I think you have to lead with value. You have to provide value to them. Somehow, some way, whatever it is, you know, you have to provide something. They, wait, but they work at MoMA. And I'm just a, an artist living in abroad. Mm -hmm. How am I of value to somebody who is at a higher echelon than me? Well, look at your set of circumstances right now. You are, have a unique position in that you live in Prague. Provide them with some value related to something that's happening in the art world in Prague that they would not otherwise have access to. You got to think outside the box with these things. That's the, that's the, if you're going to grab their attention, you got to be able to think about how to build relationships with them. What is it? That, what what speaks to them? What type of work do they personally invest in? What type of, you know, where are they going? What are they doing? What 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 shows are they attending? And then try to find something that resonates. I have no idea. I'm right. in Prague. They're in New York. How do I know what shows they attend? <laughs> it's look. MoMA is obviously a big ticket item, right? We know yes. that. Like that's the big. But if, you know, when I, sh when I talk to artists about it, you know, say, for example, they were looking to approach the Brooklyn Museum, right? Well, it's still up there, but it's a little bit more accessible. Yep. You, you could probably connect with those curators and you could, you know, provide them with insight into what you're doing, what your community's doing. There's, there's definitely things that you can do that are a little outside the box, a little unconventional. I always say the squeaky wheel gets the oil. That's like my, my, my go-to no, don't be annoying. Don't harass people, but make sure they know who you are. There's a story about, I think it's Julian Schnabel, that like he literally called the director of the Houston Art Museum mm -hmm. every single day 
for like four months mm-hmm. saying, yes, hi there. When are you going to have an exhibition of my artwork? Literally every single day, he just called him and asked him the same question mm-hmm. until finally he gave him an exhibition. Yep. I know somebody who got a very, well, actually got an internship working for the NFL. Um, now is a huge, has a huge position. She's a, I think diversity and inclusion person for the NFL, but she got her internship obviously competing with thousands, tens of thousands of people by sending her resume on a football. Yeah. I've heard stories like that. Like I know a guy who did an art exhibition where he mailed um, the art critic in his town, uh, literally mailed him a brick, not, not in a, not in a box or anything a brick and just put the stamps and with a Sharpie wrote on the brick, the address and the time of the event. And it sat on the guy's desk and well, he kept looking at mm-hmm. it and he went to the event and wrote a nice review of his work. Exactly. You have to get with creative people. We have to get creative. Like I see so many people like send generic kind of resumes and, you know, pitches that are like really flat and their work is fabulous. And it's like, you know, why not use those creative skills that we have and apply them to our business as well as our physical, you know, create creations. Like we can take that same set of skills and apply them. It does feel like right now we're everybody's so fixated on social media, websites, emails that we seem to have misplaced our interest in like the physical connections. Like I've, I haven't received an a flyer or an advertisement about an art exhibition in probably eight years. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is Facebook events and yep. other kinds of social media or emails and things like this. Like it, you know, maybe this is a time with this dramatic shift that's going on in the world right now. Like maybe this is the time to get back to the the physical interactions, mm-hmm. the, the connections to people through more creative ways than through digital. Absolutely. You can hope that. It's probably so. it's probably the complete opposite in reality, but I think that's that's what we're going to be faced with. You know, even even now we've been we're dealing with so much competition on every level, so many people competing for the visual space. That you're right, like something tangible that you can hold and touch that arrives in the box. Like you're going to pay attention to that. You're gonna you're gonna be intrigued by that. You're gonna be impressed with the effort that's gone into that. You will respond. You just will. Well, I, for six years, I lived in a country where I didn't even, they don't have a mail service. So I didn't have any mail for six years. And then I now live in a country, well, that nobody, nobody does anything like that. And only the only people that send mail to me here are my parents or things I buy online. So like, it's, it feels like things like the mail service and, and, you know, tangible things have sort of gone the way of the dodo and, and. You know, maybe we need to sort of pony up and sort of get back in that that game again. Absolutely, I'm all for it. I'm all for it, but it's also so expensive to do because I mean that's the hard part. the The hard part, okay, the hard part of all of these things, like your because you have a, a coach, sort of an art coaching thing that you do, mm-hmm. and it's it's about time, money and results. Mm -hmm. So like how much time do you have and how much money do you have and what kind of results are you going to get? My issue is, is like, so let's say, let's say mailing some things that call a, that costs time, B that costs money. 
Now, most creative people probably have time, but they probably don't have m enough money to right. do these things on a regular basis without some amount of return on investment. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the hardest part about the arts industry is like all the effort we put into creating our visual art pieces, marketing our visual art pieces, whether it's physical marketing, whether it's social media marketing, building a website, whatever it is, it's almost impossible to get a sort of one-to-one -one return on investment. Hmm. I think that there's a lot to be said for being intentional. I think a, there's a lot of people out there that are just throwing stuff at the fan or at the wall and hoping something sticks. I think you need to be more strategic in what, in your endeavors. I think that, you know, if you are sending out a press release, for example, you could have a media list with 200 contacts on it and you could sit and spend the time sending out those emails and get zero return on, you know, five hours of your time. Whereas if you think a little bit more outside the box and you know, reach out to that person on Twitter and tell, compliment them on an article and get a, you know, a relationship going with a small five to 10 group of people, you're likely going to have better results. And I think that applies in everything that you do, whether it's social media, you know, there, I see so many people just posting on social with no hashtags, no call to action, no anything that remotely tells a story. You, somebody a long time ago who works in the social kind of industry said to me, you know, doing that is like yelling into an empty room, right? We're, there's no purpose to it. There's no intent. Which is what most artists feel like they're doing, though. Like, that's usually what we feel like. Right. But if we get specifically like strategic as to what the what what the desired result is from that particular action and then you know make sure the hashtags are relevant make sure we're tagging the right people make sure we're taking using the geo tagging i see your eyes rolling because it is it's it's boring to us as creative people no it is. no it, it, no you you're, you're totally misunderstanding me i am utterly fascinated with this social media algorithms and all this mm. kind of stuff my problem is is that i cannot figure them out to save my life right. but i have a slightly unique different part to that because i am an english-speaking American living in Europe. Mm. So the so my issue is is what time of day do I post things? Right. Because you know how many people like because if I write all my hashtags in English in Europe, people are not necessarily searching for that as much as they are in America or Canada or anything like in the in right. North America. So if I posted my time here in Europe, it's it's the wrong time in America and the right time in America, which generally is like what eight to ten p.m. or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like four o'clock in the morning to me, and I'm not going to wake up just to post something on social media. So I think you got to kind of take five steps back and think about, well, who's my ideal client? Where do they reside? Where, where most of my buyers historically been located? Where do they hang out online? That's always a big one. You know, I see people who are very active on say Instagram and their clientele is not even on Instagram. You know, their clientele is this kind of 45 year old uh, or 45 to, to 60 year old who you know, it's on Facebook, but like, you need to go where your audience is, not just assume that because everybody's doing Instagram, that that's where you should be. Like, then you can get a little more hype, like hyper-focused on how you should be serving them and what the hashtags are and what time of day, but you have to understand who it is you're trying to hit and who you're not hitting, who you do not want to hit.
Okay. Well, so for those people that are listening that let's say don't know their market, mm. how do you even f- figure out where your market is? Because like I've learned a few things on that kind of stuff. Because one mistake that I feel like a lot of artists make is they make this belief that their best market is where they live. And yeah. that to me, that's completely wrong because my best markets have never been where I live. My, they're always in different foreign countries or different states or whatever. And very rarely is my buying market the place I live. Yeah. And, and I think you can look at it two ways. I, I definitely think that the micro kind of, um, you know, your own little geographical space can be great when you're perhaps doing, you know, connecting with local shows, you can be, you know, doing giving artist talks in your local town, there's definitely a lot you can be doing on this micro level. But I think you've kind of got to think of them as two separate entities. You know, what you do online versus what you do locally should probably be look very different. But again, it goes back to understanding who they are. And if you don't know who your audience is, or perhaps you don't have a record of sales at all, I think the best thing that you can do is to look at your competition. I mean, look at any industry. Like, what what do they do? They examine their competition, right? Wendy's, for example, or Burger King went everywhere that McDonald's went, right? It was just one of those things. Like, they they saw that McDonald's had success in these towns, so they went and built a Burger King a mile away because they knew there was no audience there. So look at your competition. Look at somebody who has a similar genre of work to you, who's having a, their own measure of success, and see what they're doing. See who their followers are. See who. See where they hang out online. Have a look at what their strategy is, and you can, you know, replicate that. Well, see, and that, that's one of those things that I find sort of interesting because, like, in the old days, way back when, like twenty-five years ago, if I went to an art gallery, so let's, I grew up in Washington D.C., so I would go to art galleries in Washington D.C. and I would see, and I could go to the opening and I could see the red dots. Mm. So I see the sales. I know who's selling. And for that matter, I'm probably in the room when the sales are going on because it's usually at an event or something. So I even know who's doing the buying. So when it comes to something like social media and all this kind of stuff, I sound old when I say this, but like my issue with it is is that it's not about whether, like I know a lot of people, artists on social media, and I use artists with air quotes on that, but artists on social media that they they are art stars. Like they mm. have hundreds of thousands of followers, millions of followers, mm. but that doesn't necessarily translate to actual sales or respect in the industry. Right. That's so like that doesn't get them institutional exhibitions. That doesn't get them gallery representation. It just gets them a lot of followers. Right. A hundred percent. And it goes right back to that. What is your end goal? You know, there are some artists out there that just want to sell work and be an Instagram celebrity artist. And then they could look at those particular people. If it's, you know, you want to take a more classical route and you want to have representation or you want to be in those exhibits look at their look at where they're hanging out look at who their friends are look at who they're following look at the institutions they're following you know try to at least follow that path a little i think there's just plenty of information online that we can draw from it just it goes back to figuring out what your big picture goal is well, and that's one of the hard things too, is because like even that big picture goal, they can change over time. Like, cause if you'd asked me 20 years ago, what my big picture goal was, I, I, 
actually know exactly what it was. It was that I wanted to be in the art history books. Mm. I wanted to be a definition of a, of a time period, a genre, or I wanted to be the professor that, that, that spurred on an entire generation of artists, whatever. I wanted to be in the art history books. If you ask me that now, I would say that I want to be able to make a sustainable income and enjoy my life and, and be able to have the freedom and space and time to make work. And I don't care so much about being that famous person in the art history book. Mm -hmm. So those goals change. Right. And so like to a certain extent, depending on our own arrogance and our own egos, we sometimes we can put the wrong goal in front of ourselves. A hundred percent. I see people do it all the time. Or I see people be on one path and see somebody else having a different type of success and they switch. And it just, I think we have to, I'm not saying that you can only have one big goal, but I think we have to get really crystal clear on at least, you know, bringing it down to maybe two things that are the ultimate, you know, aha moments for you career-wise and just try to stay on track as much as possible. It's not always easy though. I, I'm an artist myself. It's, you know, I'm actually taking a break from creating work because I found that everywhere I saw so much work so often that I became my own worst critic and I just could not create work that I felt was authentic. Oh, absolutely. We all go through that. I mean, I, I actually do portfolio reviews online for lens culture and like, so you know, every couple of days I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds of portfolios of photographic works. And there's, to a certain extent, there's a point of like, I never want to take another photo again because mm -hmm. there's just so much horrible photography in the world. And then, and then I'll happen upon some piece of some artist that is just spectacular and it will sort of reinvigorate me and go like, oh, oh, there are new ideas. There can be new, mm -hmm. whatever concepts, techniques, whatever it is. And so like, unfortunately, we have to go through a lot of the chaff in order to get to the, the cream kind of thing. I, that's a horrible metaphor I just made up. But, <laughs> but like, we have, we have to you know, wade through a bunch of shit in order to find those, those spectacular moments in our mm -hmm. careers, or those, those abilities or whatever. And the, the problem is it takes, sometimes it can take so long mm -hmm. to get through it. Sometimes I think to myself, I don't have the mental capacity right now to make bad work. So just give me the good stuff already. Oh no, I always have the capacity to make bad work. Mm -hmm. I can make bad work till the day goes, you know, as long as the day is. But it's it's trying to find it's trying to find that interesting thing. Like you were talking about, like with marketing, press releases and stuff. You you've got to have a a a, a, a hook, mm -hmm. a thing to grab their attention. And so it's you, but like it's really hard as a visual artist to be able to constantly come up with something new that's something interesting that's new and unique and different and authentic and you know unique uh, the special to me that will connect with other people because mm -hmm. like i can make super duper personal work that no, not a single person will understand nor will be able to relate to them right. but that's not useful mm. right i think that you can, or I would suggest that people maybe look at mining their own stories as opposed to trying to have the art tell the story. Because I think what resonates with buyers, with writers, with editors, are the human elements of people's stories, not necessarily the art itself. The art will do its own, you know, 
speaking, but look at your own stories and see, you know, what is compelling or what is interesting or unique about my own experience. And that tends to be what resonates the most. Well, but that seems to be a, a, a new invention, mm. sort of a new concept. Like, I mean, 20 years ago, that was not true. It was it was aesthetics, high conceptual stuff, mm -hmm. you know, quoting philosophers, using Latin terms, all the pompous academic mm -hmm. intellectual crap. But it seems like in the past 20 years or so, it has sort of slowly transitioned to the story behind, mm -hmm. the unique, authentic story behind a piece of art is yep. really the important thing. Well, behind the artist themselves. Well, and that sort of begs another thing. Mm -hmm. is like, why have we suddenly become show ponies where we have to like stand out there and be like, hi, come buy my artwork. Like, I, I am not a carnival barker. I, I just want to make my work and sit back and let it do its thing, mm -hmm. which also brings up another pet peeve of mine is the whole issue of like text. So like artist statements mm -hmm. for grants and residencies and all this kind of stuff drives me absolutely batty. Hate mm -hmm. it, hate it so much. In the old days, well, it was galleries that did all sort of the work, let's say, mm -hmm. the sales, the connections, and the, the clients, and the, the collectors, and all this kind of stuff. They did all that. Now, it feels like they've sort of handed that back to the artists to be responsible for. Uh, like, So like, if I approach a gallery, there seems to be some expectation that I've already put the time, the effort, and the money into building a collector base and a social media platform and, and, and followers and all this kind of stuff. And then I basically hand it over to them and then they just get to, you know, sort of ride on the success I've already started for myself. Mm -hmm. Which don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of galleries, but I just feel like it's a little there's a bit of an awkward position there, which they like, they expect us as artists to do a lot of the business work on their behalf. Mm -hmm. When I, what I really want maybe, and maybe I'm just an older generation, but like, I want them to do that work for me. Like my job should be to make artwork. Their job should be to sell artwork. Right. I a hundred percent agree. And I think that we have become conditioned to think that the gallery is the Holy grail as artists. And I'm not saying that galleries don't serve a purpose still, because they do, but the landscape is 100% different to what it was 10 years ago, five years ago. And uh, it's about to change again dramatically. Uh, absolutely. And I think institutions are going to change. I think there's a whole new wave of how we experience, interact, and just live with art even. I think it's going to be a totally different landscape. One thing I always say to to the artists that ask me for advice on galleries is, you know, you have to, it's not just about getting the gallery opportunity and being like, yay, hurrah, I've made it now. It's on you to ask questions of that gallery. You know, it should be a mutually beneficial relationship. Like if the gallery is not doing for you things like, you know, hosting openings and bringing in their collector base, placing advertisements out in, you know, magazines or publications for you, or just putting in an effort to marketing your work, then what is the point? Why are you handing over 50% or you know, sometimes even more than 50% when you could do it yourself? Like there's, we have such access to so much, so many incredible platforms and resources online now that we can really do that work ourselves. So unless it's an amazing opportunity and it's a fabulous gallery and you know they have prestige and they have the collector base, why even go down that path? Well, because most of us, 
or, and maybe I'm generalizing, but my opinion on most creative people is most creative people ch sort of choose to go down the creative path because they don't have a good mind for business. Agreed. So then, or they just don't want to pay attention to it. <laughs> right. And, and granted, there are many galleries that do put in the effort. But if you have don't have a mind for business, why would you then put your art in the hands of someone else who doesn't have the mind for business? A gallery who doesn't do make those efforts. You, know, you look. You could, there's other things that you can do online that don't involve galleries. You could have somebody, you know, invest in having somebody help you or take educational classes yourself on how to market online. You know, we have so much at our fingertips today. You don't need to be the show pony, is what I'm saying. You don't need to be the person out there, you know, promoting your art, like being the salesperson. You can do that from behind a computer screen. You can learn the techniques to at least put your work in the right place without being the the front of house person. Okay, well, that that the issue, the point you bring up that is difficult for me is the point of the right place. Mm. Right. That's a that's a an ever changing target, unfortunately, mm. because there are many. Uh, personally, I believe there are too many platforms, various different platforms online, and I get the sense that very few of them are very successful. Mm. Um, you know, I think I think there are probably two, maybe three, that are actually very good and very successful and do it well. But I feel like there are many other platforms that are taking our artists' time, money, and energy and thought and not returning on investments kind of thing. Are you talking more about the sales platforms as uh, opposed well, to social media? Well, it could be that. It could be right. even just the time and energy of building your own website. Mm -hmm. like, is that even important these days to have an actual website? I mean, I think it is, but it doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be a one-page site with you know basic Im imagery. But there's a lot of people that are just using Instagram today. It's free. It's an easy place to direct people. You don't they don't have to type out a big long URL. And you know, personally I've seen sales myself on Instagram without really making a lot of effort. So it definitely is conducive to selling. How how, how did you do that? I have never sold a piece on well, actually, I take that back. I did sell one piece on Instagram. I followed my own advice. I took, I, I looked at where my clients, I looked at my competitors is what I did. I looked at my competitors and saw where they were selling and I engaged with their followers and I ran in the same circles online and I ultimately collected, connected with a collector who purchased several pieces of my work. So it's out there. It is. You've just got to, you got to be strategic. I believe you and I totally understand you, but I, I, Part of my thing that like, you know, flips my switch in my head is, is you're using the term competitor. Mm. I'm it's an hard. academic. I'm a purist. I, I like I'm, I'm sitting in an ivory tower. I want it all to be very cordial and supportive. And the mm -hmm. idea of seeing people as competitors is not how I want. I wish the art world to be. I know. And you're going to hate this word even more product. No, actually, I don't mind product. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't bother me at all, actually. But competitor, because like, mm. no two artists make the same thing. Like, period. Like they just don't. So like, there is no direct competition. So it's not Agreed. like 100%. I make a Post-it note and you also make another 
piece of paper with a sticky thing on the back called a post them note, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Right. So like I have a tough time like knowing who would be my as your as you phrase a competitor. Mm-hmm. It's like how do you even figure out who your com- quote unquote competitor is? So I think you've got to get in the mind of the collector. You've got to think about the commonality of what the collector what what kind of work that collector collects ultimately. So I would say to myself, okay, well, if this person that I found online has work that would, I could see in the same home office workspace as my work. That's somebody who I would align myself with. And it, it, I mean, I've seen it work. I've seen, you know, this, this particular collector who, I, I found somebody who I believed had similar work to me and had a certain measure of success and, you know, ultimately put myself in front of their audience. And that's how the, this, this particular collector came into my world. So you've got to really think a step back and, and competitor probably isn't the right word. Maybe peer. Peer sounds friendlier. Let's go with peer. <laughs> I'm fine with peer. So look at your immediate peer. So who, who, Whose work could you see hanging in the same room as a piece of your your artwork or your photography? You know, think about that. Like, for example, if it's, you know. Oh, I already know. Right. You you, you know. And it could be a sculptor. could be, you know, somebody, a totally different genre. Yeah. But, I mean, the the problem is, (laughs) my problem is, is, like, the people I'm thinking of are literally at the top of their game. They're the blue chip people. So like they're 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 the people that are so blue chip that they probably don't even run their own social media. Mm-hmm. So right. like so I'm not sure that that would even really work because like they're you know I'm thinking like Idris Khan kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like I mean he doesn't run his own social media stuff, and so like anything that I could find on the social media, it's not going to work because he, his gallery is going to have all that stuff. Well, not necessarily because you look at the people who like and engage with the posts. They're your ideal potential clients. Interesting. They're the people that enjoy their work. So that's a cunning way to do it. So it's not necessarily their followers, but it's the people who actually go that extra step and engage Mm -hmm. imagery and stuff on social media. 100%. Follow those people. Engage with them. Make sure they know who you are. Sneaky. It's a lovely tip. I like that. (laughs) It's cunning, but it works. I like I like cunning. I'm a huge fan of Black Adder. <laughs> I'm all about the cunning plans. It's fine. I just think that so many people are afraid to think like a marketer when it comes to artwork because purism, you know, because this elite idea we have about what art should be and how it should be experienced. But again, you've got to ask yourself what what it is you want. And if you want to sell artwork, you have to learn to think like a marketer. You have to learn to think like a customer. And you have to separate your, you have to wear your creative hat and then you have to wear your business hat. And you, when you're wearing your business hat, your art is a product and you have to get your product in front of the right people. Well, and the other thing that a lot of creative people fight are a, a tooth and nail and myself included on this is that like basically if you're lucky, 30% of your work week would be actually in the studio producing work. The other 70% is marketing, public relations, networking, whatever, mm-hmm. like doing the business of the business of your art. Yep. 
and that's sad to most creative people. Like I, I don't want to be spending that much of my life and my time doing that kind of stuff, but that is the harsh reality that you have to spend that much time yeah. if you want to be successful in the arts industry. But there are ways to make that more manageable. There are things that you can do to automate some of these processes. You know, there's definitely, I don't want to plug my course, but I, you know, but that's it is what, what it is. Here for. Plug <laughs> but, your course. My course is, you know, designed specifically for artists who want to grow their business but don't want to be business people 24-7. You know, they want to be able to learn the various nuances, the various techniques that major companies use to automate and create processes that allow them to not be in the business 24-7, you know. So the way I structured the course was to enable people to not only raise their profile and organize themselves online, but to also reach a larger audience without doing that, you know, quote unquote, grunt work on a daily basis. So they do have more time to create. But we're closed right now anyway. So the course is closed. We, we open it four times a year because I like to have a small class. We usually have around about 10 students in, in each time. So but we will we will be open again in the summer. Marvelous. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. <laughs>